So just imagine with me, you are a first century sceptic. Perhaps you've come from a Jewish background, you're reading Matthew's Gospel for the very first time. And it's extraordinary. Because you're with him. He's making you rethink this whole Jesus thing again. Your scepticism is... It's just seeping away. Matthew has set the bar very high. But he's convincing you as to who Jesus is. He stacks up the evidence and you're, you're, you're papered into a corner. You can't deny it. So at the beginning we trace his family tree. He's come from the line of Abraham. Genesis 12, he will fulfil God's promise to Abraham. He will bless the whole world. And he's come from the line of David. God's promise to King David. There's going to be a king who will rule forever. So a king who will bring blessing to the ends of the earth and who will rule forever. And then he lines up prophet after prophet after prophet. And and it works. You're thinking, could this be him? Goosebumps. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is the one. This is the man. But, but he seems to be more than a man because he's called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's not just a human, somehow he's divine. You didn't expect it, but it, but it, seems, it seems so obvious now. And in fact, Matthew's told us man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Jesus heads up the mountain, sits down and opens his mouth. As if, as if Matthew's telling us these are not just human words, these are words from the very mouth of God. Words to teach us and nourish us and feed us, to, to bring us life. Words to change the world. And we're thinking, what's coming now, Jesus? You are the powerful king. You are the answer. You are the one we've been waiting for. What are you going to say? What is your plan of action to bring about your kingdom? How are you going to put a broken world back together? And so the king opens his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Right. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Seriously? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And on and on. It's the wrong way round, Jesus. You're going to change the world through, th- through that? Through, through people like that? That is your plan? That is it? Are you sure? Where's the power? Where's the might? Where are your armies? Your, your manifesto just sounds backwards. Just as we begin to get our bearings more generally for these verses, I want you to notice three things before we dive in. 
They're very famous verses, the Beatitudes as they're sometimes known, Jesus starting off his teaching ministry. The first thing I want you to notice is, is this paradox series we've been looking at week on week isn't something that I've kind of made up. You can imagine, can't you, the preacher in his study trying to come up with something a bit fresh, a bit novel, a bit different, that the, the idolatry of being original. But actually these paradoxes that we've been looking at week on week on week, the, the fact that the, the way down is the way up, this is the plan. This is the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. This is not new. Second thing to say is we can't just take them or leave them. Our hearts might wrestle against this idea. We might want to be powerful and alive and rich and wise in the eyes of the world. But as Jesus teaches us here, it is vital that we're not. This is the shape of the kingdom. This is Jesus setting out his stall. This is for everyone. That is the plan. King Jesus changing the world through his kingdom with little people like us, with the little decisions that we make every little day. Changed hearts and minds which lead to changed actions which leads to a changed world. The third broad thing, just to notice, did you see this was how we are to be blessed? It's a, it's a snapshot of living the life that we were made to live, of, of real life. I'm told there are some of us who, when we buy something a bit complicated, we don't even read the instructions. We just, we just get it out of the box and we start playing with it. Then there are others, like my wife, who get there much quicker because they open the instruction manual. They read it, they absorb it, that they see how it works. Jesus says, this is how you make life work. This is what it's all about. This is how to be blessed. The blessed word's an interesting one. might be better how to be happy. Some translations would have that. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It might mean congratulations to the poor in spirit. Fortunate are the poor in spirit. We were in Wales last week. The Welsh translation, I'm informed, is white is their world, which is an idiom for everything's good. Everything is happy. It's living life as it was meant to be lived. Do do you want to to live life as we were meant to live it? Well, Well, these verses are incredibly important then. Living this kind of way with these kinds of values to be enjoyed both now and forever. Did you spot that? So, verse 3 and verse 10, the the bookends of the core Beatitudes, they're they're promises now, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, present tense. But then verse 2 through to verse 9, they look ahead, they will be comforted, they will inherit, they will be filled. Jesus talking about his kingdom then. It starts now, but it doesn't stop. Life has begun and because he's conquered death so it goes on but the key thing just to latch on to before we jump in is that these aren't a random selection of ideas someone pointed out to me a while ago that that there's an order here in fact I think there are two halves as you go through these verses they're linked 
And so the first half, verse 3 to 6, first point, how to know the king. So the story begins on the way down. The story begins in the pits. And it begins with us being poor in spirit because... You see, while we still think we can sort our own fundamental problem, then nothing is going to happen. To be poor in spirit means we know that we are helpless before God. We are helpless without God. But to be frank, in in our culture currently, there are very few of us who will be poor in spirit because it pulls against the thinking of the day, the idea that we can, in our strength, achieve whatever we want to. Your life is just a blank canvas. Fill it with whatever you want. You can do whatever you like. Or the idea that that we are basically at root, all okay, and we're quite nice people, really. It means that people don't really want to be poor in spirit because it pushes against our pride our sufficiency. Poor in spirit doesn't mean that we're weak in character. It simply means that when we, when we grasp where we stand before God, then we know who we are. 1 person said this, They said it's the opposite of the arrogant self-confidence which not only rides roughshod over the interests of other people but more importantly causes a person to treat God as irrelevant. Speaking to someone recently who who described to me the way for the first time they, they suddenly grasped what Christians meant by sin. Suddenly they saw how how they were shot through with it. Suddenly they saw how it infected their life. Different aspects and angles and bits of their life. Not just what you do, but to the core of who we are. Our hearts. The ability we always have in our hearts to veer and to ask, well, what, what do I get out of this? What's in this for me? And so with them came a, a poverty of spirits. Suddenly they saw who they were before God. Unless we see our need of him, unless we see the reality of our bankruptcy, we're lost. But for those who do, see how the verse ends? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so on to verse 4, those who mourn with a poverty of spirit when we see the world is broken and we see that we're bankrupt. Well, so you mourn. It's not mourning at a funeral type mourning, but it's mourning over the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of of your life, the, the brokenness of your heart, the reality of our sin. It's honestly being able to look inside and to see what's there. Of course, there will be times of rejoicing now, but the comfort ultimately, Jesus says, will come later. True comfort will come later. 
And then meekness, verse 5, it's a word, again, that we misunderstand. And again, in our culture, it's a word that is despised. Advertisers tell us that the meek will inherit nothing. Meekness is weakness. Well, we have the idea that Jesus was gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and he spent most of his time being pushed around by others and wearing a dress. But I take it meekness is strength. Meekness is to do with how we relate to God and so how we relate to others. Because when we recognise what we're like and we mourn over the sin in our hearts, then we treat others with respect and with gentleness. And we're humble. And we're kind. And we listen to them. And we value them. I think we have some lovely meek folk here in this room. But but I think their meekness is not forced. It's not an act that they put on. It comes at the end of the chain. It comes after poverty of spirit. It comes after mourning over sin. And that then leads us to the very depths of this first half, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. As Richard was helping us see earlier in the service, think righteousness and think both a longing and a seeking for things to be put right, but also a salvation and a rescue that only comes from God. God putting right what is wrong. Poverty of spirit, to mourning, to meekness, to longing for righteousness. The longing for our our brokenness to be undone and for the world to be made new. And we've descended to the very, very bottom of the valley. And we reach that point. And look, you'll be filled If you're someone here this morning who's never trusted Christ before, if you've never thrown yourself on his mercy but you see your need, you hunger and thirst for his righteousness, perhaps you've tried to live the right way but you just can't do it, you can't last an hour, then I would urge you to throw yourself on Jesus. In this broken world to be a part of his kingdom is the best place that you can be. It's it's how we were made to live. It's how to be happy. It's how to be blessed. Maybe it's your first time here. Maybe you've just wandered in off the street. Maybe you've been coming week by week by week for years. I'd urge you to hunger and thirst for his righteousness, to trust him. It's, It's something we do once, but it's something we do every day as well, each morning, turning afresh to him. Filled afresh by him. Then what? What happens next? How do we live for him? We know the king, verse 3 to 6. How do we follow him? Verse 7 to 12. Let me read them again to us. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way that you persecuted the prophets who were before you. It strikes me the danger with the second half of these verses. 7 through to 12 it is that it be- can easily become all about what we do and the legalist in us, the, the Pharisee, Loves that. We love a to-do list. We love laws to keep. But I take it 7 to 12 are the fruits that grow from the tree of forgiveness. It's not us pretending and, and nailing fruit onto a dead tree so that we look like we're alive and we're growing and we're flourishing. That would just be an act. It's us having been brought to life, having been filled with righteousness that then our lives are changed. So do you see them? When you know the mercy of God yourself, verse 7, then you're merciful to others. Bonhoeffer said this about mercy. He said, The merciful will be found consorting with publicans and sinners, careless of the shame they incur thereby. In order that they may be merciful, they cast away the most priceless treasure of human life, their personal dignity and honour. For the only honour and dignity they know is their Lord's own mercy, to which alone they owe their very lives. Language from a different era. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying, people that we could judge, people that we could treat harshly, we don't. We don't treat them as they deserve. We show them mercy. Maybe it's in the office, people underneath you, in the pecking order. Maybe it's in our family, it's a sibling rivalry with younger siblings or older siblings. Maybe it's people who get stuff wrong in our lives again and again and again. And in one sense we have every right to haul them over the coals, to let them stew in the doghouse and let them know how much they offended us, how much they hurt us. But we don't do that because we're merciful because of how he's treated us. With his goodness and his purity and his holiness, does he not have every right to make us pay? But he's been merciful to us. So we're merciful to them. And so you will be shown mercy in return. to be a community of people who are merciful, who are kind. But as well as that, we're to be pure in heart. Purity of heart is wanting to live God's way. Jesus so reigning and working within us that we are transformed on the outside. Not just in public. Not just when our lives are under the spotlight and seen by others, not just at church on a Sunday, but in the car journey on the way home as well. When people are here, when people are not here. Purity of heart is being honest with yourself about what's going on in your heart. Attitudes, 
motives. Purity in heart means we'll see God. Peacemakers. Verse 9. We've said before at Malden Road that we live in a world of war. The world of warring relationships. Relationships between us and God and between us and us. War between nations. War in the playground. In the office. In our friendships. In our marriages. In our workplaces. Things that we say. Things that we do. Things that we think. Ours is a world of war. But as people who know King Jesus, we're a people who know peace through the cross. And peace with him means peace with one another. So we'll be those who seek reconciliation, to bring reconciliation where we can between others. But reconciliation for us too with others. Not to hold grudges. Not to fight wars with words but rather to keep short accounts. As far as it depends on you, and as far as you can, to be people who love peace. What does that mean? I know for some of you that means difficulty in friendships, because there are friendships that have turned sour. It might mean husbands and wives, there need to be conversations that are had. It might even be Friendships within this room. Fallings out that haven't been dealt with. Frustrations. Misunderstandings. Hurts. For us as a church, as we look ahead, as we seek to recruit another member of staff, different people have different ideas. Different ministries that they care about. Ministries that they love and have a heart for. And so different agendas as we try and recruit someone new. Or or buildings and vision and the future of the church and planting. And and that's not how we used to do it. Magdalen Road, we may well disagree with each other. I hope we do in one sense because we're very different people. But in the midst of that, let's be peacemakers. Let's be kind. Let's be forgiving. And the problem is, I read those last three, and to me they seem really attractive and alluring and beautiful. Verse 7, merciful. Verse 8, pure in heart. Verse 9, peacemakers. And they seem lovely, and they ought to. Because they look just like our king. He is the truly merciful one. He is the true pure in heart. The true peacemaker. And so sometimes I think, well, if with his help I can live like that, and as I have the privilege of teaching you guys each week, you can live like that, then people are going to flock to church. It's going to be revival. They're going to come in drones. And so I don't really like how it ends, verse 10, 11, 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see, in my mind, living like Jesus has to be profoundly attractive to a watching world. But in Jesus' mind, living like him means we're going to be persecuted. Just like he was. John Stott said, said, It may seem strange that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution, from the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility, yet however hard we may try to make peace with some people, they refuse to live at peace with us. Think about it like this. Think of, of an amazing, beautiful light at night time. And the world is captivated by the light. Like little moths, they flutter around. They're attracted and intrigued and confused. They, they, they want to know more. But then next to the same shining light, you see reality. And you see what you're like. And you see the truth of your heart and you see your sin. Jesus polarises people. Love him, hate him. And so we show someone mercy and they don't like it because in one sense they want to be made to pay for their mistake. They want you to take revenge on them. It's that playground fight where one little boy hits another and instead of going to the teacher they say, well hit me back and then we'll be quits. We don't like grace. Or, or pure in heart. You say in the office, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to join in with that conversation. I'm just going to stand back. And they say, are you judging me? Do you think you're better than me? That they don't like holiness. Purity of heart. Or peacemakers, you, you seek to help a couple of people reconcile. You seek to get in contact with someone you've fallen out with and And they're not interested because they would prefer to stay as they are. Because reconciliation is costly. Because hearts are hard. Because grudges are easier. And so like Jesus, like the prophets before him, our following in the footsteps of the king means that we're treated as he was. And the trouble is, I'm a coward and a people pleaser. And so I need to remember that I am following in his footsteps. They persecuted him and the prophets who were before him. I need to remember there's a future coming. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So when I'm a coward and the temptation is just to keep quiet, just to, just to avoid trouble, it means sensitively... And carefully, in that situation, I cannot chicken out because I'm following in his footsteps. And I might be a coward, but I'm following my king. When I'm a people pleaser and I'm more concerned with what they think, it means I can be confident and prepared to suffer rather than pleasing them because there's a future coming and I can take a little bit of flack now for what's to come then. I can go through the suffering now 
for the glory to come. There's more to this world than this world. So friends, as we, as we paradoxically follow our, our servant king, as we're part of his paradoxical kingdom, at times the world won't like it. Our values, the values of the world, will, will rub each other up the wrong way. But it's how it's meant to be. It's, it's his plan to change the world. It's hard stuff. It's always been hard stuff. It's always been topsy-turvy, always countercultural. We're not alone in that. Christians down the ages have struggled with this. Listen to this as we finish. So I wish I'd found it earlier. A, because he says it better than me. And B, because it encapsulates what this Paradox series is really all about. One of the early church fathers, nearly 2,000 years ago, said this. He said, let us become like Christ since Christ became like us. Let us become God's for his sake since for ours he became man. He assumed the worst that he might give us the better. He became poor that through his poverty we might be rich. He took upon himself the form of a servant that we might receive back our liberty. He came down that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might conquer. He was dishonoured that he might glorify us. He died that he might save us. He ascended that he might draw us to himself, who were lying low in the fall of sin. Let us give all, offer all to him, who gave himself a ransom and a reconciliation for us. That is our king. Let's follow him.